if anyone tells you that you're a convicted felon, you're a drug addict, you know, you lost your kid or this and you can't do it, tell those people to go fuck themselves because they were absolutely wrong. I am a convicted felon several times over. I lost my child for four years. I've been to prison more time than most females, unfortunately. And I came home and I just kept doing the next right thing. Like I'm a convicted felon who is horrible drug addict who is lucky enough to be in the remission part of her life. And I wake up every day and I think to myself, like, is this real? Is this real? Is this really my life? Because why? I don't know how I got so lucky. That's why I always say it's by the grace of my God, because I definitely didn't do this alone. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobes. And one of my favorite conversations to have on the show are those that amplify incredible stories of recovery and hope. Jen Cutting has one of the wildest and most inspirational stories that I have ever come across. Today, Jen has been sober for nearly four years. She's a recovery warrior and works closely with the prison system to help other women. This would have seemed nearly impossible not long ago as Jen has been incarcerated multiple times for drug-fueled felony charges. In fact, she even had and raised her daughter while she was in prison. Today, she will walk you through her shocking and moving journey that is filled with many highs and many lows. Jen grew up in Staten Island, and like many, was raised in a very financially stable home with two parents. But she found herself being smothered by their protection and control and began to question her self-worth. Shortly after high school, she met a man that was nearly 10 years older than her, and that relationship gave her a taste of what manipulation, addiction, and artificial love felt like. After breaking it off with him, she used his credit card to buy a plane ticket, moved to Florida, where she quickly got a job as an exotic dancer at a local strip club. On her 21st birthday, she was introduced to cocaine, and that's where things took a turn for the worst as it quickly turned into a lifestyle. It got so bad that she moved back to Staten Island before her 22nd birthday. While she thought it could be a catalyst to help her get her life back together, it actually had the opposite effect. She met another man, began to strip at another local club and was prescribed Vicodin after an injury. Jen was prescribed Vicodin for months and months after her initial script and found herself in the depths of opiate addiction. After her doctor left, she was forced to get her fix illegally. So she found men at the club who could get her pills, and eventually this led her to trying and shooting heroin. The debauchery continued, and her and her then-boyfriend were caught stealing to support their heroin habit. She was arrested on a grand larceny charge and sentenced to time in prison. She does her time, gets out, and begins right back where she left off. She catches yet another grand larceny charge and ends up in a diversion program where she was able to kick the opiate addiction for good. Shortly after her release, she fell in love with another convicted felon and became pregnant. After violating her parole, she found herself back in prison again, but this time facing a much more challenging stint as she was pregnant and her due date was during her incarceration. Not only does she successfully have her daughter, She was able to properly raise her with the help of other inmates in the prison's nursery program. You would think that after all of this, Jen would finally throw in the towel. Well, she didn't. 
She was arrested for selling meth and found herself incarcerated once again. And to make things even worse, she lost custody of her daughter. Today, she has full custody, has been sober for nearly four years, and is giving back by helping others in recovery and in the prison system. She is here to tell you the story of how this all happened and more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Jen Cutting to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Jen Cutting, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I cannot wait to to have this conversation. There's so many things about your story that inspire me, that fascinate me, that want me, that intrigue me to want to learn more, which is why I wanted to have you on. I mean, you've accomplished so much. And I mean, you look at, you've done the unimaginable. You've essentially beaten multiple addictions. You've survived multiple incarcerations in prison. You were a former stripper, and now you're having a healthy and, and thriving marriage. You had a child when you were in prison. And now you actually have full have uh, full custody, right? Or you have custody of your daughter, and all these things they're they're not like impossible, but they're they can be challenging, right? And they, there can be many obstacles that come in the way of all of this. So I, I wanna I wanna unpack this, but to start, what brought you to jail? So I have unfortunately I've been in prison a few times, not just once, and. I mean, so the cut and dry simple answer would be my substance use disorder. So I am an addict through and through. I do everything with an addict's frame of mind, even in the healthy part of my life. I'm still an all or nothing type of gal. So my addiction is the long, short answer, I guess. For two two times, the first two times that I went to prison was for grand larceny. And the then I had a little parole violation in between. And then for the last and final time, by the grace of my God, two sealed indictments of methamphetamine sales. Wow. Yes. So grand larceny, selling meth. It's not like yeah. you were just busted with you know a couple of dime bags of Coke or crack mm-hmm. or, or heroin. You were really like in the thick of it. So what I want to know, and I think I, I really think the audience will get a lot out of is how does this girl, because it seemed like you grew up from the outside in a pretty stable household, household right? Like you're... It, to, your parents, I think it seemed like we're financially stable. And, but along those same lines, like with that said, they had some pretty strict like boundaries with you and maybe didn't let you be yourself. Correct. And that kind of led to your addiction. So yes, absolutely. 100%. So I grew up in a very financially stable home. My dad owned a business in the full fish market, worked like a slave, did a amazing job as a financial provider. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, occasionally had a job here and there. But at the end of the day, my mom is textbook narcissistic. And it just, you know, when your mental health is not up to par, your world is very different. And then when your mental health is not up to par and you have children and one who has, who is disabled, I have a younger sister who has Down syndrome. I think it was just really too much on my mom. And she never really wanted to say, I need help or I'm struggling. Back then, things like that were not spoke about. Women were not allowed to have poor mental health. If you had like postpartum, it was always, you know, like whisper this, whisper that. It, It just, help wasn't as available as it is now and as it is becoming. And my mom really, unfortunately, you know, now she's in the latter part of her life and she doesn't understand what mental health issues truly are. You know, my parents still don't. So I always say, you know, addiction is not a parenting fail because it is absolutely not what childhood trauma is. And at what point in time do you stop and say, well, bad parenting had to be a part of the story. 
no one's ever held a gun to my head and made me do any of the substances that I've chosen to partake in in my life. That is 100% fully my responsibility. I am a drug addict because I picked up that first drug and because of the way the chemicals in my body have been maintained my entire life, right? But growing up as a child, I never felt accepted. I never felt like I was good enough. Nothing was ever right. Nothing was ever enough. You know, I would do one thing and I would think I was the bee's knees because I actually completed something or passed a test or was on a sports team or whatever. And it was always, all right, we'll do better next time. The, the old school Italian mentality of how you raised your child back then kind of set the future up for failure with always pushing too hard, pushing too much. You know, and that's one thing that I've taken for myself, for my parenting, my daughter's job is not to live up to my expectations. It is not her job to fulfill what I think she should be. Right. You know? Yeah. And that makes sense because there's a lot of parents that listen to my podcast and there's people even in their own recovery journey. And I think it helps to understand that, you know, childhood trauma doesn't have to be anything hardcore, like severe or super tragic, right? And of course, there's many cases where it is. But as exactly. you explained, it's pretty textbook to how to what many people who end up with certain mental health issues, they end up down that addiction path experience, feeling less than feeling not enough, feeling like they're just being so controlled, that what mm -hmm. happens when you want when you're when you're so controlled, you want to break free even more because like, it just becomes like another like thrill or a rush, or you just want to completely escape because you're just, you feel so bound up. And, right. and I know for you, like you, you were that, and then you go to high school and then I think, disaster. yeah, and it was a disaster for you. And then you get into a relationship with a guy. Right. And then so I was super socially awkward in high school because I was always bad. So I was always punished. So I never went to any functions, any events. I was always the odd one out. Like, so I, I was super awkward. I never experienced your typical high school things. And the minute I graduated and then turned 18, as soon as I heard that 18 number, I actually called the local police station where I lived in Staten Island, New York, and said, I just turned 18. If I leave my parents' house, can they come get me? And a female cop answered. And she said, well, no. She said, but can I talk to you for a second? And I said, yeah. And she said, is anyone physically touching you? And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, are there, is there anyone who's assaulting you? And she explained sexual assault to me. And I said, no. And then she asked me what the problem was. And I didn't feel comfortable talking about it because I was raised that what goes on in our house stays in our house. You know, your dirty little secrets, you don't air out to anyone, especially the police. And then she tried to explain to me, and I appreciate this female officer now as I'm an older person and I'm a, I'm a girl mom, you know, she said, I want to explain something to you. She said, you know, we always think that it's so much better out there and that it's going to be such a better time when we leave our parents' house. She said, but as women, it's hard. And there are plenty of men who will try and take advantage of you. Like she really, I respect that woman and the things that she said to me. And I still chose to leave mm -hmm. because for me, my situation was bad and I had no mental health of my own because I was constantly feeling not good enough, not enough, less than all those things. And I had met a man, I was 18, he was 27 and I literally packed a black garbage bag and I left. Mm. So I, so. I, I want to, I want to kind of continue down the path and 
you know, un- uncover like what happened as a result of that and where that led you. But first, I think an important question to kind of to ask here is, is you get a lot of parents like, what could I have done differently? You know, and while you said like it wasn't a parenting fail, I definitely think when you share from the addict's perspective, you know, being that teenage girl on what you would have wanted from your mom and dad in that situation that maybe would have given you a better chance mm-hmm. at developing this massive urge to get addicted to drugs. So like, what, what would you, if you were talking to your mom and dad right now, and they were on this, this call with us and you had a few minutes just to share some things that they, you wish they would have done differently. What would they have been? Well, Hmm. without giving you like full reign and just letting you go wild? Because I don't think that's the answer either. I don't think that's the answer. I think structure and repetition is absolutely, every child needs structure, repetition, education, all of that, 100%, because that's what gives us a good foundation to let us develop our house, so to speak, you know, for the rest of our lives. But I think the simple fact that they, they never really talked with me. They talked at me. And they never listened. And I was so sheltered that I truly didn't know what drugs were. I mean, I knew alcohol and I was always taught alcohol was bad. There was never alcohol in my, in my household growing up. We were always taught that it was so bad, so bad, so bad, but I was never told why, you know, and to be quite honest, I I remember one of the first few times, like when someone mentioned I needed to go to rehab later on in my life. I thought rehab was for old white men who drank too much. Like that was what rehab was to me or physical therapy rehab. I knew nothing about what rehab really was, but that's because we were so sheltered and I was never taught really what drugs and alcohol were, how they could debilitate the rest of your life and change who you are, you know, on a foundational level. I never knew any of that. And I feel like maybe if my parents weren't so concentrated on trying to protect me, from these things and actually said like, listen, this is what the world is really like. Like there'll be boys that want to take what you have. There will be people who are truly not your friends. They will pretend I was unprepared for the real world. I had a vision of, you know, white picket fences in a house. I thought that this man at 20, that when he was 27, when I met him, we were going to get married, have a house, babies, you know, your typical delusional young girl mindset. And I wish they would have prepared me more for the world. Right. And they just didn't. That's, I think that's pretty common in family dynamics. In, in my experience, um, just from what I've learned about myself and others, where if you're so constricted with the way you kind of raise the kids and you put so much pressure on them and you set these massive expectations, you know, there's a lot of room for, for to experience Failure, not that failure isn't good to experience because I think we do need to experience failure and learn how to get through that. But I'm talking like severe, like mental and emotional failure that Mm -hmm. can come as a result of not fulfilling the expectations of your parents, not being the person that you think that they want you to be, and then having them kind of talk down to you. It can really diminish your self-esteem because during that time is when you're developing your self-esteem, your self-confidence, your own actions, your own behaviors and who you are. And so I think it's a really fragile time for teenagers. And while I, I, again, with that said, I don't think it's easy because it's like in the same sense, 
you know, you could have gone down the path regardless. Right. But I, I think it's an important conversation to have, to let people know if they're listening to this, like, okay, like, you know, if somebody here is listening and they're being super constricted with their kids and they're wondering why their kids are acting out, here's some things that maybe they can do. Well, yes. And I, and I totally agree. So this is the thing, like at the end of the day, your kids are your kids. They're their own entities. Yes. You might have made them, you care for them. You love them. They, they are, you know, they have mannerisms like you and body language, but they're still their own person. I feel like my job as a parent to my child is to be as open and honest and to listen as much as possible. But I also established ground rules. My daughter knows, you know, she gets sassy at times, rolls her eyes at me. You know, she loves her screens. First thing to go is a screen. You're not going to act that way. You have to learn respect. That's all part of parenting. But also as parents, we have to understand our children vibe off us. You know, my dad worked nights and he was constantly tired because he worked nights. He'd get up, poor guy, like sincerely. He'd get up at six o'clock, shove food down his throat, go back to sleep. It was a, it was a very, he sacrificed a lot in life to provide for his family. I will absolutely hands down, give that to him. Wonderful provider, but there's more to parenting than providing. Mm. You know, I would constantly feed off my dad's vibe. He'd be half awake, grumpy, tired, short tempered. You know, now I could be very busy with work and have a lot on my plate and on my mind. And my daughter will be like, mom, why are you in a bad mood for They feel that, you know, sometimes we also have to understand we're doing all this to provide for these little people. We have to remember they feel what we feel, whether we think they do or not. And I have to sometimes when my daughter says that, like snap myself out of it and be like, all right, it's, it's seven o'clock. Like I have to stop working and spend time with her for an hour because she shouldn't have to feel that shittiness that I feel because I have a client who's, you know, withdrawing and I can't get them into a program quick enough because their stupid insurance won't turn on fast enough. I I have to remember when to put down those things too. Just because I'm a good provider doesn't negate the fact that I need to be a better parent. Right. Right. No, absolutely. And I think support comes in many forms. And I would argue that the most important form of support for kids is really like emotional and mental support, right? Because you know, even if you're going through hard times financially, if you can really be there as a beacon of hope for your kids and and learn to to manage your own stress and then help them through that process as well and continue to kind of hold space and be with them, you know, along that journey, it's going to teach them when they're older that even though um, life is challenging, you can still maintain some sense of stability to get you through those hard times in order to, to come out of it on the other side. So we could dive into this all day and talk about this, but I really want to kind of move, move along the journey because I think this will all make sense as to why you made some of the choices that you made as a teenager. So you're 18, you meet this guy who's 27. Where does that Mm -hmm. take you? No, we're good. I tried. Well, I, I smoked, I like really smoked weed for the first time. Wasn't my thing. He was an alcoholic. And I did not know what that really even meant. I thought what he was doing was normal for his age, but living in your parents' house at 27 with no job, no car, no nothing is not normal. And I did not realize that because I was an 18 year old girl out of high school. You know, it was just, it was a crazy situation. And now hindsight always, you know, and it just started a 
path or a pattern, I guess you could say for me of realizing that I can have people as stepping stones, if you will, as horrible as that is to say, but I was able to then use that experience to meet other people. And then I decided, well, this is not for me after probably about, I was 20. So when I was 20, I moved to Florida, to Orlando, Florida. And I met a guy and he was like, yeah, sure, you can stay here with me. And my parents were actually ecstatic because they knew this guy and they liked him and they hated the 27-year-old guy that I was with. And rightfully so. No one wants to see their 18-year-old child because at 18, let's face it, you might be grown an adult in the legal eyes, but you're, you're, you're a child. Your brain hasn't even finished developing yet. So they were all for it. And I moved out there and I was going to get a job. But when you live in Florida and you don't know, you've never lived there before. So you don't even understand the busing system. Because again, I was so sheltered as a child. I never even had taken public transportation. So I didn't even understand how to navigate the bus system, which is crazy, right? So at this point, you had only smoked weed, you said? And I took ecstasy one time. Okay. So then you you, you smoked weed, took ecstasy. And I guess just to, to follow up, you said you used people as stepping stones. I would imagine, and we'll get more into this, but I, I, was, I, I was learning my craft of manipulation, basically. Right. But I think you probably use men mm-hmm. um, in a way because you lacked that emotional support from your dad. I mean, I, 100%. I and so this was a way to fill that missing void for you. So you smoke weed a little bit, you do some ecstasy. I think you, you know, you booked like a one-way ticket with this dude's credit card, dump him, yep. and then you roll out to Florida. I'm going to roll out to Florida and I'm going to get a job. It's Florida. I'm going to get a job. It's Orlando. There's jobs everywhere. I'm going to get a job. Okay. So mind you, I'm 20 years old. I have shit for experience. I don't even own a resume. I don't even know how to make a resume at this point. And I'm like, shit. So one of these dudes, this dude that I'm staying at his house, his friend comes over and he's like, oh, let me introduce you to my girlfriend, blah, 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 blah. Her name is India. India is beautiful. She's sensual. She's sexy. She's tan. She's sweet. She's this. She has a new car. She invites me to sleep over her house. She just bought a house. And I'm like, girl, what do you do? Like, you know, she's 10 years older than me. And she sort of takes me under her way. She says, I'm, I'm an exotic dancer. So I'm like, you're an exotic dancer. That sounds cool. Like, what does that mean? I don't know what exotic dancer means. I don't realize it's, you know, a fancy name for stripper, right? So I'm like, cool, what's that mean? Can I do it? So she was like, well, they're looking for cocktail waitresses where I work. She's like, I'll get you an interview. You'll get the job for sure. So I'm like, okay, what should I wear? And she was like, well, I'm like going through the whole thing. And I go in to interview and they hire me on the spot and I start cocktail waitressing. And I cocktail waitress for one night and I made about, I don't know, 75 bucks. And then we got in the car to go home and India made about 1500. And I was like, fuck, like, bro, I could do that. I know I could do that. I see all that money. I could do that. Right. So of course I'm like, I could do this. Mind you at this point in time, I probably had like seven sexual experiences in my life. And it's like with the same person, I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no clue who I even am as an individual. And I'm like, all right, let's get it. 
I worked at a bar uh, called Stars and Bars in Orlando on Orange Blossom Trail. I actually think it's still there. Oh, no, I'm sorry. The Dollhouse. Stars and Bars was in Long Island. I worked at a place called The Dollhouse. And so Orlando is part of the Christian Coalition. And your songs have to be a certain, well, they were back then. I don't know if they are now. Your songs have to be like a certain width. You have to wear what they call nipple tape. So it's just skin color tape, but your nipples are actually covered. So technically it's not, you're not fully naked. I mean, it it was just crazy. So the girls all take me in the back. House mom, who's like this, this dude came over, you know, everyone's doing my hair, my makeup. I'm petrified. I mean, I'm shaking. I'm so scared. Mm. They put me on stage. It's like five, six o'clock in the afternoon. They throw me on stage and all the girls are sitting in the chairs and they're like cheering me on and everything. I don't even remember. Like it was probably one of the scariest experiences of my life. And then there was like a couple of dudes sitting in the audience and all the girls must've told them like it was my first time. They're throwing fifties at me. Then as soon as I get off, they all ask me for a lap dance. I don't even know what a lap dance is. And I'm like, sure. I have no idea what's going on, right? I'm petrified. I probably made like 800 bucks that night that I worked for like five hours. And I was like, all right, I guess this is my new thing. I was petrified. Even the next time, like every time they call me on stage, I'd be like, man, you know, because they have a spotlight on you and shit. I was petrified. So I want to ask something really quick. In that moment, like when you're doing this and I want to first preface this by saying, I don't believe that people who strip are bad people or that that's necessarily a bad profession, so to speak. But was there anything going through your mind where you're like, man, I probably shouldn't be doing this or I know I can do better. Was there any of that? Or were you just so naive to everything? You were just whatever, doing whatever you could to make some money and have fun. We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second. But first, wanted to give a quick shout out to our sponsor. I think we all know by now the importance of optimizing your mindset and using it to attract what you want in life. But the problem can lie with the how, like how do you do it? And so with that said, internationally recognized therapist Marissa Peer is offering my listeners a special price for her 21-day abundance challenge. I have had a chance to look through the program and can personally say that this challenge is loaded with tons of valuable content. I believe that if you put forth your best effort into this challenge, you will feel rejuvenated, optimistic, and confident at the end. She will help you overcome your deepest limiting beliefs so that you can live the life that you deserve, and you will get things like meditations, training videos, previously recorded Q&As, and most importantly, access to a community of like-minded souls to help hold you accountable. This challenge is valued at well over $1,000, but she has heavily discounted it to just $99, and you can actually save an additional 25% by entering the code Doug at checkout. And if for some reason you aren't satisfied, she is offering you a full refund if you aren't satisfied within the first 10 days. So go to www.marissapeer.com forward slash Doug. Again, it's www.marissapeer.com forward slash Doug to learn more about the incredible program and join the challenge to live more abundantly. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 25% off. Now back to the show. I definitely was not having fun. Let's just put that out there. I was so fucking scared. Fun was not anywhere, even in the building. I was petrified. I think I was just like literally like 
talking myself through it. Like, how do I get, oh my God, I hope this is over soon. I hope this is over soon. Like that literally was my panic, you know, my ADD self inside my head was just trying to get me through that song. It was the thong song nonetheless. And it felt like the longest song of my life. I was just trying to like get through the song and stay on beat, trying to move, not fall over in these high ass heels they had me in. Like I literally was just focusing second by second on getting through what I was doing. But there was no fun involved. Fun was fun was like five miles away. There was no fun in that moment. Right. Right. No, that, that definitely makes sense. And I think probably what was going through your head too, I, I can imagine as well is like, subconsciously you're probably thinking of like your past and your childhood and maybe even like your parents. I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't know, but I'm sure that all played into you being kind of petrified of the situation. My moral compass, my upbringing, like I knew that wasn't something I wasn't like, I was going to call my parents and be like, yeah, I got a job doing this. I was like, yeah, yeah, I got a job waitressing. And they were like, where? And I was like, just a local place. You know, I didn't even know what to say. Like, I wasn't even a good liar at that point. Like, it was just a bad, it was just bad. And so is that pretty common that cocktail waitresses become like they work their way up and become strippers or do people come in as just as strippers or they, they're solely doing cocktail waitressing? Cause it seemed like so people come in just as strippers, but okay. cocktail waitresses a lot of the time do work their way up because why would I make a hundred bucks a night when I can make 15? Exactly. And yeah. I mean, you're pretty scantily clad as a cocktail waitress, so it's not a far stretch. Okay, that makes sense. And and so something that goes hand in hand with strip clubs is drugs. And it seems like this is where things really escalated for you was, was in the club. So walk the audience through how your experience and the environment at the strip club catapulted your addiction. Right. India, who became my sister mom, also introduced me to cocaine for the first time. She was dating a gentleman, like I said, which was friends with my roommate's friend. And my birthday is in October. I probably started this escapade in August, September. So I'm just getting into the groove of things. I'm just starting to, it's going to sound crazy to say, but I'm just starting to develop self-confidence and be aware of my sexuality and the fact that I can get things from men with a smile, a stare, you know, and this is a very new experience for me because I never had the self-confidence for, from myself, if that makes sense. You know, I'm a smaller, I was always under small, like extremely small because I hadn't grown into my body yet. I was kind of always the ugly duckling, so to speak. And now I'm starting to grow into my body. You know, I'm almost, I'm 20 years old. I'm about to be 21. And I'm finally starting to realize being fuller on the bottom is not a bad thing. And, you know, learning how to do my makeup and my hair, and I'm, I'm becoming a younger woman and not so much just a girl anymore. So it's my birthday and we are going to go out to the clubs and we're going to go out and do things. And we stopped to pick her boyfriend up and they go in their bedroom and close, they go in his bedroom and close the door. And I'm sitting in the living room and I'm kind of like, you know, just like, all right, this is weird. And all of a sudden she opens the door and she's like, come in. And I'm like, what? She's like, come in. And my biggest fear was they were going to like hit on me or something. Drugs wasn't even a thought in my mind. And I'm like, 
I don't know. And she's like, just come in. We want to talk to you for a second. No funny stuff. Just come in. So I'm like, okay. I was so naive. They could have like, it was just such a crazy situation. So I go in and she's standing by the door and he's sitting on the bed and he has his back like towards me. He's doing something. He's kind of lines of coke. I had no idea what he was doing. So she's like, sit down. And I'm like, okay, this is the weird, this is like such a foreign, I've never been in this type of situation. So now I'm getting scared. I'm getting nervous. So, okay. I sit down and she's like, you want to do a bump? Oh, she goes, no, no, sorry. She says, do you want some Coke? And I'm like, well, I'm not really thirsty, but I guess. And she was like, no, do you want some cocaine? And I'm like, no. Like, you know, I've heard of cocaine in school, but I've never seen it. I don't know what it is. I have no idea. And I'm like, no. She's like, are you sure? She was like, you could just do a bump. She was like, I'll give you a key bump. And I said, what's that? I had no idea. So she's like, watch, I'll show you. So she takes the baggie. She does a key bump. She shows me he does one. And I'm like, are you okay? Like, you know, I don't, I know nothing, nothing. This is the first time I've ever seen actual drugs aside from marijuana and ecstasy. This is like, this is the big leagues, right? And I'm like, what the fuck? You know, I don't know what to do. So she's like, do you want to try some? It's the night of my 21st birthday. And I'm like, no, but all right. Like, I don't know what to do. And she, she hands me the key and I'm like, I don't know what to do. I don't even know how to do these drugs. And I was like, so what's going to happen? She's like, oh, you're going to feel it go down your throat. It's going to be a little bit of a burn, a little weird taste, but you'll be fine. You'll love it. So I'm like, fuck it. All right. You know, so she shows me how to do it. I do a key bump, whatever. And I'm like, ew, that's fucking gross, man. And she was like, you'll love it in a second. And I'm like, no, I still don't. She's like, you want to do another one? I'm like, all right. Like what? Mm. So, and then for the rest of the night, she proceeded to tell every dude in the club that it was my 21st birthday. I have never had so many drinks and shots given to me and bags, like baggies of cocaine given to me. People were licking them, sticking them to my chest. Like it was crazy. I probably didn't sleep for two days. My poor body was so polluted. I didn't, I was like vibrating. I was so high. Like it was intense. It was crazy. I remember she was like, here, come smoke a joint with me. You'll feel better. And I was like, all right. And I was like, no, I don't feel better. Like I still feel like my head's going to blow off. I couldn't, after that, I couldn't breathe for like three days. It was crazy. Wow. That's, that's, that's insane. And it's, it's crazy. Well, you could just tell how sheltered you were growing up that when you heard when somebody at when a when a dancer or stripper asked you if you wanted some coke, you know, in a in a private bedroom, you know, it's not like you were in the kitchen that you thought she wanted to offer you a, a can of coke. And not that somebody who wasn't a stripper, I'm just, you know, it's the same like I, to me. I was I sheltered. Many other people, the first their first sheltered. instinct would be like, all right, this person's trying to get me to snort a line of blow. And you would yeah, say no idea. Yes or no, based on like where you were at in your life. And then you proceeded to do it all night. And you had this like negative experience because I know for me, when I did my first line of, of blow, if people can imagine, like, think of your self-esteem as a thermometer and say your your self-esteem thermometer, at least for me, and maybe like where you were, is it like zero degrees? Mm-hmm. And then when you snort a line of blow for me, my self-esteem thermometer went up to like a hundred. 
right? I felt so good. I felt euphoric. I felt like I could do whatever I wanted to. I felt like I could ask out any girl. I felt that I could say what I wanted. And that becomes addicting, especially if you're somebody that feels less than, especially if you're somebody that has never had that self-confidence, like Coke does that for you. So you had this it seemed so like for me, that didn't come from cocaine, but that came from opiates. Opiates okay. was a game changer in my life. Right. Yeah. And it was for me too, and, and so many others. But I wanna what I wanna kind of go where I want to go next is you have this horrible experience, it seems like with drugs. Like you didn't even really appreciate the coke. You you said that like you were getting drunk and smoking weed, and then like you felt like your body had just been completely poisoned for a yes. few days. So what made you want to go back for more? So I thought it was like, I guess in a sense, I felt like it was the thing to do. Like, like I had arrived and that's where I was supposed to be. You know, all of a sudden, all these people knew my name and I had all these friends and, you know, we would hang out and we would work, you know, Monday through Thursday night, we'd work and Friday, Saturday and Sunday, you know, we'd party and then recuperate and hang out. And I had a group. I had a group of people. I was a part of something. They they didn't expect anything from me other than to be there and be funny and laugh and hang out and, you know, be a good time girl and all that. And I felt like, Oh, this is what, this is what being a young adult is about. This is what I'm supposed to do. I had no idea because no one ever told me what young adulthood was about. You know, I thought it was, you stayed at your mom and dad's house till you met somebody and got married and you had kids. And then that was it. Like that was life. I never knew that you could be like this independent person in between and find out what you like and what you don't like and have experiences and this goes back to what you said in the beginning. Like if my parents had properly prepared me for life and explained to me what happened after high school, not that you just married some guy and had babies, you know, my life maybe wouldn't have, maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't have, who knows, but at least it wouldn't have been such a harsh slap in the face of what reality and life really was like. Right. Yeah, you're right. And and I think you never know what could have happened had things right. been handled differently when you were growing up. But based on what you've shared during this conversation, it seems like your brain is just wired for impulsivity and addictive behavior, right? And so I'm I can- an addict through and through. I mean, even now, I, I still have addicted tendencies and qualities. You know, I work all the time. I'm always working. Even when I'm off, I'm on. Right. And then with, with that said, it, it also seems that once you got your first taste of like men and like mm -hmm. what that attention could do for you and how that would make you feel, you're like, Oh, like, I like this. I can. And then, then once you learned how to, you can, you could use your body to, to get attention from men. I'm sure that became like a, like a, an addiction in itself, but all that's fleeting. Right. And then you need, you need more of it every oh, time. Absolutely. you do it. So back then, you know, now looking back, I feel like when you look back on things, you have a better perspective because you're not in the moment of it. But while all this was happening, believe it or not, I was very uncomfortable with it because I didn't know how to handle it. And I didn't know how to act. And I was very unsure of myself. So I would get compliments or people would say something and I was very awkward about it. And it was very evident. I was very awkward about it. And I was so young. I was, I was a baby in a lot of ways. So my age maybe was 21. 
but my mentality was not because I was so naive and I was so sheltered that I didn't, I was either really nasty about it or super awkward. You know, like if a man hit on me, it was either really nasty to him because I didn't know how to just be regular, if you will, or I was just super awkward and they would be like, she's, she's weird, <laughs> you know, because I didn't know how to just be like, thanks and, and keep it moving. Or I didn't know how to decipher who was predator and who was just pleasant. You know, it was just a super awkward situation for me because I had no education on what men were really like because I was never taught. And then I went from being super sheltered, super awkward, just weird. And then threw myself into sex work where attention is consistent and all the time from everyone, male, female, ages, whatever. So I went from nothing to all and I didn't know how to act. And then that's, that's the foundation I started to build my understanding of men on. And for, for a long stretch, it was bad. I would look at men's shoes. I would look at their watches. That would determine whether I would speak to them or not because I learned to judge men as money and status and what they could do for me instead of looking in the, at them as people and not judging them on all that bullshit. Because now that I'm older, all that surface bullshit is just that bullshit. You know, you could have the nicest watch in the world or the shittiest watch and be an amazing person. You know, all that exterior shit is just that it's bullshit. Yeah. But that was, that was my, my school, my learning, my foundation. And it's, it's such a sad existence. There's a few things in, in life that I think are incredibly addicting that you can't see. I think one is, is fame. And the other one is, is attention. Like you can't see like neither one of them. You can really touch, but you look at right. how addicting attention can be. And like, like I was saying a few minutes ago, once you learned that you could somehow manipulate men in, when you were a sex worker, you were like, Ooh, this is mm -hmm. becoming easy. Let me see how I can maneuver this or like social media. It's like, once you like post a photo and you're like, wow, I can get a hundred people to say they like me by clicking on a photo. Let me get to 110. Let me get to 150. Let me get to 200. And that's a problem now. And, and whether, oh, you're, whether you're an addict or not, that's a, a massive problem in our society is this, this facade. Exactly. Yeah. This facade that the more attention you get or the better you look or the more famous you are, the happier you're going to be. And it's not to say that you shouldn't take care of yourself. It's not to say you shouldn't work hard, but that alone isn't going to create infinite prosperity, infinite happiness for you. You know, it's funny that you say that because my husband and I were having a conversation about this, I think like yesterday or the day before, actually. And I feel like, yes, everyone, everyone in the world, their end goal is to be as successful as they can be in whatever their style of life is. Everybody wants to be successful. Everybody wants to reach a certain plateau that they feel is what happiness is in their life. But the problem is, if you don't have foundational happiness, the rest of it is just bullshit. You know, you can be social media famous. You can be the 
president at your job, the executive director, all that. But if you don't have something in your life that actually gives you genuine, true happiness and love, the rest of it is just bullshit. You know, the simple fact that I have my daughter back now, that alone, I look at that baby in my bed at night and I just have this overwhelming sense of peace and happiness that I never knew I needed and never knew existed. You know, my husband and I, we have been through hell and back together. And that man gets me. And he also knows when it's time to call me on my bullshit and when it's time to let me fly off a little bit. You know, that that in itself, oh my God, I'm as successful in my life as I am now because I have that. You know, that that dose of reality. And I mean, man, I feel like I won the lottery because I do the type of work every day. Like I'm so incredibly blessed because I do the work that nourishes my soul. I don't think I could go sit in an office shop and not work with the top population that I work with. Like I wouldn't be happy. I just would feel like I was being phony to myself and a failure. And the simple fact that I get to work with people in active addiction, people on parole, newly home from rehab, mental institutions, like those are my people. And I just feel like I won the lotto. So no matter how social media famous I get or how many times I tell my story, all of that would be empty without all of that real life stuff underneath it. Right. You know? Yeah. It makes total sense. And it just echoed I guess the point I was making earlier that, you know, all that stuff's well and good, but if you can't come home at night and put your head on the pillow and be happy with, with who you look at when you um, look in the mirror, like none of that other stuff matters. And you, you you touched on getting your daughter back and the relationship you have now with your husband. And I'm sure people listening to this are like kind of wondering like how you have somebody when you're incarcerated and then you go back to prison and then you lose custody. Like how, how'd you get her back? But first, I kind of want to finish the the trajectory of your story and how you end up like in prison. So you, you have this experience with your 21st birthday, then you get into the thick of the lifestyle of that world, right. And everything that comes with it. And then you end up finding opiates and you find meth. Moving back home to New York. Okay. Florida became a fucking train wreck. And how, how old were you? Not even 22. I didn't even, (laughs) it was like, train wreck. You know, I learned, I became a part of the nightlife. I became a sex worker, became addicted to cocaine. I didn't even like cocaine. Still to this day, I've never liked cocaine, but it was always always so readily available. And then because I was in Florida, I was constantly hanging out with, you know, sports players, music people. I I got so, oh, it was just such shit. You know, it, it really was. I try not to actually think about it because it was just such a shitty year of my life. But obviously it was a necessity and needed and I'm grateful for it. All of it. I ended up moving home to New York. I moved back to my parents' house, but I was, was different. What was that like? Yeah. Oh, horrible. Absolutely horrible. Here are my old school mentality, Italian Catholic parents. And then here I come back. Now I'm a stripper. My whole style of dress is different. I wear makeup. My attitude is different. You know, I'm, I've changed dramatically. Like a blind person could see I've changed. And I crave what I've been living for the last year. You know, it's so crazy because it's so easy to go into something, but it's so hard to come out of it. You know, I'm a 
foot first type of person when I jump into shit and nothing was different with this. So I come home and went back to Staten Island and I'm just fucking bored, like bored. He ends up going with somebody to go get a tattoo. Tattoo Mm. guy says, what are you doing later on? And I'm like, nothing. What are you doing? And I'm like, so I say to him, of course, right away, this was bad, off to a bad start. He goes, well, do you want to hang out? I'm like, yeah, are there any surf clubs we can go to? Because I'm thinking like, I need to find a place to work, right? And he's yeah. like, fuck yeah. <laughs> what time can you be back, you know? And I'm like, all right, cool. I'm not like, I'm like, cool, this guy tattoos, he probably has some money, whatever, he's kind of cute, you know? But I'm like, I need, I need to find some work. Like, I need to find me again. And I'm thinking to myself, I know they're going to have coke there. You know, this is where my mentality is going because I am an addict now and I have no idea about this. It's all you know, it's your normal now. Yeah. So we go and turns out one of the girls that I run into, I actually know her. Then there was another girl who actually I danced uh, with at bike week in Tampa. So she was there and she was like, Oh my God, you have to come on stage. Oh my God, you have to come work here. Da, 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 da. And it just, you know, went from what was supposed to be me getting back to myself to me actually just making it worse because now I'm home. I don't have anywhere else to run to if this fucks up, you know, and now I found a new Coke habit, you know, a new, a new way to support my Coke habit. Rather, I found new employment immediately. Like it wasn't an hour that I was there that I was already on stage, taking my shirt off, you know, making money, doing what I know now how to do. And this guy is like, bro, when do you want to hang out again? You know? And I'm like, I don't know. And then, (laughs) you know, he and I started hanging out steady. He was a dog. He was a dog. He had a girlfriend at the time. Like, I didn't know any of this. I didn't know him from a hole in the wall. I ended up like basically sleeping with him on and off for a year. It was just a disaster. And it just led me deeper into that lifestyle and those types of people that I was searching for because he was able to introduce me to that. And it would just, it all went downhill terribly. And then I ended up leaving Staten Island and moving to Long Island and with a very good friend at the time. She was like my best friend back then because I needed another escape because I was just shitting where I ate, so to speak. You know, it is, I didn't realize it then, but now I understand you take you wherever you go. I thought the area was the problem. So I thought leaving was what was going to benefit me. I ended up moving to Long Island, meet another dude. He actually owns the strip club that I start working for. We become engaged. We're going to get married. In the meantime, he fires me as a stripper and hires me as a bartender because we're getting married. He doesn't want me to strip anymore. I could bartend. It's a huge deal. We ended up like fighting over it, like you met me like this. You can't change me because it doesn't live up to your expectations. It became like a very big issue within our relationship. Mm. I end up, I don't remember if I fell down or I tripped or something, but I end up like really hurting my back. I go to the doctor and the doctor prescribes me Vicodin. Mm. I'm like 23 years old. I've never had an injury in my life. There was no reason why I needed Vicodin. I probably could have did like an 800 milligram ibuprofen to be quite frank, but he just writes me a script, tells me, take this, gives me a muscle relaxer. I take that, da, 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 da. So I'm like, okay, 
I don't know what opiates are at all. This is like the very beginning of them and their popularity, so to speak. And he writes me like six refills. So now I take them, right? And I'm like, so what year was this? Oh my God, 2003, maybe. Okay. Maybe around there, give or take approximately. So, you know, now I'm eating these fucking things like candy because I'm like, this is amazing. I feel wonderful. Back injury? No, this is great. Like, this is great. Now, all of a sudden, I go back. He gives me another prescription with refills. So this is like months, like eight, nine months, right? I don't think anything wrong with it because I'm taking my prescription. The doctor gave me that. I don't know what this is. So I call up to make an appointment and I tell them, listen, I'm out of my prescription. Do you think he can call me a refill? And in the meantime, she goes, no, he's on vacation. And I'm like, okay, can he call me a refill? And in the meantime, like, can somebody call me in a script in the meantime? Like till he gets back, like, I don't feel good. Like, and they were like, the nurse says to me, oh, honey, you need to go to rehab. You're addicted to them. And I said, rehab, what are, what's rehab? Isn't that like where old white alcoholic men go or people who had surgery and need to exercise? What's that? And she was just very nasty. And I'll never forget like the, the judgment in her voice. And I was like, ma'am, I don't know what you're talking about, but like my doctor wrote me this prescription and I'm going to tell him you said this to me when I see him next time. The next time I went into the office, I saw him before I could even tell him what happened. He wrote me another script. And I was like, all right, cool. I must not need rehab. That nurse was an idiot. She didn't know what she was talking about. And then it just went on from there. And then probably about six months later, I went to go back and he was no longer there. And then I was like, well, shit. So one night when I was at my ex-fiance's club, I'm sitting on the other side of the bar. I'm having a drink with an old customer of mine and we're talking. And I say to him, like, hey, blah, 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 blah. Do you know where I can get these things? Like, is this a thing? Whatever. And he was like, oh, don't worry, mama. I got you. He's like, how many do you want? And I was like, a prescription's worth? And he was like, so what do you want? Like 60? And I'm like, okay. You know, he goes out to the car, comes back. He hands me like 10 of them. He's like, try these. Tell me if you like them, if that's what you want. He goes, and then I'll get the rest for you. He's like, don't worry about it. Those ones are on me. And I'm like, oh, all right. And he ends up giving me Percocet, which were way better. And then as soon as I found out that I can buy them like that, why would I go to the doctor? Especially I'm in the industry. It's everywhere. So here you are now. You found that <clears throat> you found your crutch, right? You found this <laughs> substance that, that, I love. that you loved that made you feel at peace, that relieved not just physical pain, but your emotional, mental, spiritual pain as well. And then on top of that, you go back to manipulating men, mm -hmm. right? Because now you find this guy that was an old customer of yours that now you've made this connection to like, oh gosh, like he likes me. He's a connection for drugs. I need to lean into that. So, so where did that end up taking you? So I did not know, but the guy that I was dating at the time, he too was taking them, mm. but he was also selling cocaine. Got it. And I, again, I did cope, but it was only because it was there or I felt like it was socially acceptable or whatever the case may be. So now I started hiding the fact that I take pills from him. 
he was like a recreational pill taker. You know, like people sometimes recreational have a glass of wine. Well, he was like a recreational Percocet popper. So for him, you know, it was whatever. So then there started becoming even more secrets in our relationship. I decided that I still wanted to dance. He was not okay with it. I ended up going to a different club and they offered me crazy money to bartend because they knew I was his fiance. And it was just a way to like competition wise, stick it to him. I ended up working at a different strip club as a bartender. I became the head bartender. And then we all got arrested for credit card fraud. The owner of the bar was doing something with the credit card machines. I still, to this day, I never ended up getting a charge for it. I got arrested for it, but I never got charged for it. And this was in Long Island. And we all, all the bar staff, because we all had access to the credit card machines, like every night he would come in and take the credit card machine out. And the next morning there'd be a credit card machine in there, but it was a different one. So I don't know if he was like going back in and overcharging people or like manipulating the tally or what he was doing. Mm. So after that happened, I ended up getting bailed out. Everybody got a $5,000 bail. There was a lot of associations with the owners, with other entities, other clubs, we'll say. So they were trying to get the bar staff to roll on who was coming through the door and who wasn't. And I was just not having any part of that. I know what that affiliation was and I like my life, you know. So after that, I never went back there again. And him and I ended up breaking up. He cheated on me and I moved to Delaware County, upstate New York, because that's where my parents were. And I said that I was only going to live here for six months. I was just coming up here to get clean off the pills. I started drug and alcohol. Did they know you were addicted to pills? My parents? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It was very obvious. I started drug and alcohol, but then I met people and I started hanging out with this girl who had pills all the time, buying them from her, whatever. And then she was out and she introduced me to a guy and I had seen him around. I kind of knew who he was. He kind of knew who I was. We just, and I, she was like, call him. He's picking up oxys. And I was like, Ooh, I've heard about those. Okay. So I call him. I had a car. He did not. So he was like, yeah, take me for a ride. We'll pick some up. And I'm like, all right. So we went for a ride. We picked some up. And every day we would go pick up a couple. I did not know he was also doing heroin. No judgment. Just it is what it is. So one day we went to go pick up oxys and dope, which I did not know about. And we get there and the guy's like, I have no pills. Like I'm out. I, I, I can't get my script till tomorrow. And I'm like, the fuck do you mean? We go back to his house, the guy's house. and. I'm sick. Like, bro, I'm sick. Um, I can't even get off the toilet to go puke. I'm sick. So he says to me, a few minutes, like, probably wasn't a few minutes, but whatever time frame went by, he knocks on the door. Are you okay? And I was like, no, go fuck yourself. Like, I'm dying. Leave me alone. And then a little while longer goes by and he's like, are you okay? And I'm like, no, like, this is not okay. And he's like, well, I might have something left over, you know, for mine and my brother's, but you know, it's not what you're used to. So I'm like, what is it? You know? And he's like, well, it's, it's some dope. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, it's, it's like a bag of heroin. And I'm like, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Probably 20 minutes goes by. He knocks on the door again. He's like, are you sure? I'm like, well, let me see it. So I get up, whatever. And we sit down on the floor and he goes to show it to me. It's a fucking cotton shop. So mind you, it's not even like just 
residual leftover, like I'm going to do a little and feel better. If they've already used what they had. So it's, it's a cotton shot. It's a leftover. So I'm like, absolutely not. Fuck you. Absolutely not. Hour goes by. I'm, I'm dying. Like, I think I'm dying. I'm sweating. I'm freezing. I'm puking. I'm shitting. You know, all the things. Because it's been like a day and a half now. I haven't had anything. I'm like, fuck it. He's like, listen, he was like, just this one time. No one will know. He said, I promise you it'll make you better. We'll go find something else. Da, 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 da. I'm so sick. I'm like, fuck it. Let's do it. I got so high off that cotton shop because I was a virgin to any type of intravenous drug use that I was like, whoa, like, wow, ha- this is this is what this is like, you know, off of that. Like, what was that even like? I didn't understand what cotton shop meant. Like, you know, I didn't I didn't know what he was doing. He was like, you know, hit it with the plunger and whatnot. It was just crazy. And from then on in, you know, when the oxys were available the next day, I got some, but it wasn't fulfilling. Were you snorting oxys or were you shooting them? Snorting them. Okay. But you shot dope. Yeah. All right. Okay. Just wanted to make, yeah. I just want to make sure I understood correctly. Okay. Yeah. So then that's when he was like, well, you know, you could shoot your oxy too. And I was like, really? Is it going to make me feel like that felt me, me feel the other day? And he's like, well, something like that. So then I started shooting my oxys. Okay. That was a fucking disaster. Jesus. I did not know what I was doing. I did not know how to do it. He did everything. Thank God he did, because that could have been another bad situation where I could have infected myself or done, you know what I mean? Made a bad shot or whatever. I had no idea what I was doing. For me, I probably would have just, you know, muscled it. I didn't know anything. (laughs) Right, right. So that went on for months until he and I got arrested. We were at Walmart. He stole someone's purse out of her cart chucked her purse, I guess, in the garbage can and hands me her wallet. So he hands me her wallet. And I'm like, what's this? As I'm taking it out of his hand, why wouldn't I? I have no reason to not trust him. Here comes Walmart undercover security, grabs us both as um, we both have our hands in the wallet. (laughs) And they were like, you're going to fucking jail. And I'm like, for why? So they put us in separate rooms at Walmart while they call the state troopers. And I literally was like, I don't know what's happening what's going on? They come, they arrest us, a female trooper. We're like halfway between the Walmart and, and the jail where they're taking us, right? She stops the car. She pulls me out and she said, listen, I know who your family is. She said, and I know you're a decent girl. She said, I'm going to search you and whatever we find is going to be between you and I. So I'm like, Okay, I don't even have my own clothes on, right? I have his sister's clothes on, who I'm unbelievably good friends with today. And she got her shit together and she's amazing. She's a social worker and she's just a rock star and I love her. She sticks, mind you, we were stealing to be able to afford our dope. She sticks her hand in my pocket of the jeans that I'm wearing that I borrowed from her and pulls out a bundle of dope. If we would have known that all along, we would have never been committing crimes. Just saying how God works in mysterious ways. So, she like goes through my purse. There's no like needles, nothing, whatever. And she was like, when are you going to get your shit together and start, stop hanging out with shitty men and like value your life. And I, I don't know her name, but I will never forget her face. And still to this day, I remember this woman, you know, like she was a strong, powerful woman in my life. Just like that other cop when I was 18, when I called and she tried to talk some sense into me. Right. Right. So I ended up going to prison <clears throat> for the first time on a grand larceny charge. I got a one to three and I did like a year came home. 
get my shit together, complete a parole after a year. So grand larceny was for the Walmart thing? Yeah. Okay. I came home. I, I completed parole successfully. Probably 90 days after I got off parole, arguing with my parents, arguing with my parents because it's always super toxic for me to live there. I move out, back at it, back at it. I end up catching another grand larceny charge about a year, year and change later in 2010. So yeah, about a year later from stealing money from my job, I worked as a home health aide and I worked for elderly people and I stole cash from their house, get arrested for that. I ended up getting sentenced to a three to six for that. And I was able to ask the DA and the judge to sentence me to Willard. Willard is a, it used to be military boot camp. Now it's just a drug treatment incarceration for 97 days. When I did it, it was military boot camp. That program in 90 days was able to give me enough structure and realization in my life that I never picked up another opiate again for the rest of my life. I came home from there, got pregnant in April. I came home in March, got pregnant in April with my daughter ended up getting married to her father, who was also a convicted felon. And we were both on parole. And that was a no no. And we ended up getting arrested. He ended up getting sentenced to 90 days, I got sentenced to 18 months, I had my daughter in a New York State prison, I had my daughter at Bedford Hills Correctional Facility in the nursery program. And honestly, I wouldn't have had it any other way. Yes, I would have liked to be home and have the baby shower and lay in bed with my child, but I knew nothing of being a mom. Nothing. I did not know how to clip toenails. I didn't know you were supposed to wash umbilical cords. I didn't know how to bathe a baby. I was afraid I was going to drown her. Like, I didn't know any of that. And there was such a structured program in there. It's ran by Our Children, H-O-U-R. They're in Queen City, New York. And they were running the nursery program inside Bedford. And it was godsend. The entire program. And then we had a nursery worker who was also an inmate. Her name is Leanne Armanini. And she's actually Bella's godmother because I had Bella baptized while we were incarcerated. She is, I I truly feel like God put her there for a reason Mm -hmm. because she works with everyone that comes through the nursery program. Well, she did. She's not any longer the nursery aide, but there's so many different walks of life that come through that program. And she was able to love and nurture every woman that came through that program and teach them how to mother. And that is a special human being. And I'm eternally grateful for that program and for her love and support. Mm. She's still incarcerated, unfortunately. I actually just did a video about her on my YouTube channel. And it just makes me sad that she's still there because she doesn't deserve to still be there. Let's see. So let me, I I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to like jump over what you just said, because there was a lot that I think people would really want to know is like, so you get arrested on grand larceny, you get out. You get arrested again, and then you convince the judge to get you, put you in like a 90 day, you know, drug treatment program, and then you get pregnant and then you get arrested again. Was it five years? Oh, yeah, that was a parole violation. Did you fail like a drug test? What was the, the... Mr. Curfew? Oh, Mr. Curfew. OK, so you end up going back to prison for to, for five years for five years. For 18 months. For 18 months. But this was this, you were backing up five years. You said five. So, no, you said relapse. I thought I was a little bit ahead of myself. That's the next. That's the next. Okay. That's the next part. <laughs> oh, okay. So, yeah. So you end up going to, to prison for 18 months. 
And then you're pregnant in prison. So what was that? Ex- <laughs> I've shared my experience of being in like county jail a thousand times. And, but I think people would get a, would really get a lot out of like your experience as a woman, not only in prison, but pregnant and having a child in prison. So what was that like? A blessing <laughs> and a curse. Cause you were in solitary confinement too, right? Okay. So being pregnant in prison absolutely gets you treated differently the other inmates, you develop this, this family type setting with inside prison. You have people who act as the mom, the dad, the siblings, the cousins, the aunties, the uncles, whatever, you know, and you have every walk of life in there. And I have met some of the greatest people behind the walls of prisons, the most talented, the most artistic, the most amazing people And I've heard some of the most heartbreaking stories and some of the most heroic stories and being pregnant in prison was so fucking hard, but I was never, I was so looked after by the other girls. You know, I would come back from the doctors because every, every pregnant woman is considered high risk inside and someone on the unit, one of the girls would have left me like leave me a bowl of food on my bed. Or when they got their packages, they put a piece of chocolate or, you know, they'd want to feel the baby move or prison is such a dark, lonely, unhappy place for the most part. So anytime there's new life or things like that, you know, I would be in general pop while I was pregnant. And then when I went to the nursery program, if one of the girls were to see me walking to a program or whatever, baby mama, how's my baby? How is she? Oh my God. I'd have a picture. I'd show them a picture. She's gorgeous. Oh my God. Da, 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 da. Like really happiness from them. It was beautiful. And I think that's really overlooked about how prison nursery programs uplift the morale of the entire facility. It's like a bright light in a dark room, giving birth the way I did. There are things like there are things about my birth story that I'll never remember because it was so traumatic. And that's my brain's way of protecting me. You know, and it's just, it's just recently dawned on me that that's why I don't remember my entire birth with my daughter. You know, it was just her and I, I have no pictures. I was all alone, you know, and I, and my daughter and I like, we're always like me and you kids since day one, like nobody was there with me. Nobody held my hand. I had a nurse that treated me amazing and actually extended her shift to see my daughter be born. But I don't have like, no family came to see her, nothing, you know, her, she met her first family, my grandparents, when she was 13 months old, hmm. no one came to see us. No one met her, none of that, you know, her first birthday was in prison and surrounded by people like Leanne and the other nursery moms. Like that was her family. Wow. When we first came home, birds scared her steps, confused her. Wow. That's, that's amazing. And so inspirational because I didn't even know that, that that kind of thing existed where Mm -hmm. you could have a child in prison and then you would be able to to kind of keep it it's like winning the lotto while you were there. I mean, not that it would be taken away from you like permanently, but I would I, I had thought and I really didn't know that you could have the child and then you could kind of raise it in the system. But you said there's like a certain timeline, I think, mm-hmm. for that where you're allowed to. And 
thankfully you fit into that timeline. So you have the child in prison with the help of Leanne and the other inmates. They taught you kind of how to be a mom, if you will, and raise your daughter. And then I can imagine you have this newfound motivation to kind of clean your life up and, and stay on a good path. But as we know, sometimes things don't work out the way we want to. So you get out of prison, then what happens? So I got out of prison. I came home and I was not allowed to parole to my county because her father, my husband at the time, who I was going for full custody and divorce, also paroled to that county. So they put us in a different county to keep us safe because his mental health was very, very poor. Three months in, I say, I, I, I can't do this. Like I'm living on 40 bucks a week. My parents are buying my diapers. Like I can't do this. I asked, I wrote the supervisor and requested permission to move back to my parents' house. I thought things would be different because I was a parent. I really had my act together. I was genuinely trying. I was not using drugs. I had not been using drugs. I was at the time I was sober for two, two and a half years, almost three years actually. And I moved home and a few weeks later, her dad committed suicide. And that was, that was rough. I, I'm not even going to say it's not. There's a whole bunch of details that I, I really don't share very often surrounding it, but his mental health was very, very poor. He ended up having a standoff with the police. There was a lot of domestic violence there. There was a lot of sexual abuse on his end from his childhood and just things that I didn't know all the details of when we met, he would tell me bits and pieces of things and his mental health just got poorer and poorer and he ended up committing suicide. So that in itself was dramatic. I ended up starting a business where I made handcrafted soaps and whatnot. And I did amazingly well. After a year of being on parole, I had one of the most supportive just every parole officer should be like this man. He was unbelievably understanding and kind, supportive. He wanted me to do well, did whatever he could to help me re-enter into society. It, it just, he, he should train parole officers on how to be parole officers. It was amazing. I completed parole successfully. I had five years of sobriety, owned a business, was a single mom, but I was unhappy. I did nothing. I went nowhere. I had no socialization. I never worked on, I was sober. That was it. I was just sober. I didn't know why. I didn't know what. I just knew I didn't do drugs anymore. I didn't work on anything. And now I know that that's the best way to relapse, <laughs> you know, not working on past traumas or, you know, dealing with all the baggage I was carrying from the previous actions of my life. I didn't know. And I decided well, I'm going to go out for a few drinks. And that led me right to cocaine, dabbling here and there a little bit. And I convinced myself that because it was not my drug of choice, like opiates, it was okay because my life, I never got arrested doing cocaine. It was okay. So, well, I learned that that was a line of bullshit. And I met my husband and I was already fucking off. So I don't want anyone to be like, oh, your husband's your downfall because I am a grown ass woman and make my own decisions very poorly at times. He was not drinking. He was sober from alcohol, but he too was dabbling in cocaine. And we just 
had a very tumultuous relationship in the beginning. I hated him and he would love me. I would love him and he would hate me. I would want to leave. He would, you know, just, just your typical codependent bullshit, drug fueled, bad relationship. About a year and a half into it, I said, we're going to sell methamphetamines. <laughs> this is a great idea. There is no meth in our county and people are foaming at the bit for it. Let's get it. That literally led me to prison. Um, so we ended up moving in together after a few short months of dating. He loves my daughter like he made her himself. And we just had a very drug-fueled relationship for the first three years. And then I was in the thick of it. Like I was one of the largest at the time, one of the largest meth dealers in my county, you know, like the man who arrested me told me a few short months ago, he said, you were one of the hardest females I've ever hunted. And I was like, oh my God, that sounds terrible. <laughs> you know, and now it's someone that I work with and actually trust and appreciate his efforts in my county. But yeah, it was crazy. I ended up getting sentenced to three years, two years post-release supervision, which is just a harder version of parole while when I first got incarcerated, I, I knew nothing about custody, about partial joint, residential, whatever, you know, I didn't know you could give custody with an expiration date. I didn't know any of that. Mm. So I just immediately signed full custody over to my parents and my daughter because I didn't want her to go into foster care. And that's when the narcissism just took over on my mom's end. I mean, it was always bad, but this went to the next level. I was not allowed to talk to her. I was not allowed to call the house, but once a week to speak to my own child, the rules all changed. Like at first it was, yes, we'll take her to see you call as much as you want. She's your daughter. We would never try and take her from you. We just want you to get healthy. We love you. We love her. Yada, yada, yada. And it was all bullshit. It was all bullshit. The minute I signed those custody papers, the game changed immediately. Only once a week I could call. She wasn't allowed to come see me. I actually, 15 months, I went without seeing my daughter. And I had to get a lawyer when I was in prison and take my parents to court to get visitation of my daughter. And the same judge that sentenced me to prison was my family court judge. And he told my parents, I am appalled you have not taken your granddaughter to see your daughter. It is not your job to judge whether your daughter should see your granddaughter or not. And they mandated visits and wow. phone calls. And that was the only time that I was able to visit and have calls with my daughter. I will be sober four years by the grace of my God this fall. My daughter just moved home a month and a half ago. Not even the 12th of this month was a month. I fought in court like a dog for eight months for me to win. And I won everything, everything. The only rights they have to my child now are what I allow. Mm. And it wow. was a fight. It was a dirty fight. But in the, the two years that I've been home from, from prison, I have killed myself to become the woman that I am. I started a program called Supplies for Life, literally with a hope <laughs> that other people would help me out with this. And I started an Amazon wish list. And I used to work at an agency because I'm also a recovery coach. I'm a car and a surfer. So I'm a coach and an advocate. And I was sending all these people to rehab with nothing, no 
toilet paper, no shampoo, no body wash, nothing. So I started a wish list called Go Backs, where I had these little drawstring backpacks that I would give to people to go with, with, you know, hermetically sealed. So they were able to have it. And then my best friend, who's super annoying, and I love her to death, harassed me to start a YouTube channel because she has one. And to shut her up, literally, to shut her up, I was like, fine, whatever. I'll do it and prove you wrong. It's going to suck. And it was kind of cool and therapeutic and enjoyable. And for my birthday last year, because I've only been on YouTube for a year, I posted a video about go bags and I linked the Amazon wish list. What's go bags? Go bags are just items that I put in bags and give them to people who are homeless, newly home from prison, out of rehab, mental institutions, because unfortunately that's where our disease leads us sometimes. And I just help people out. And it, when I posted that video last year for my birthday, these amazing human beings who restored my faith in humanity went insane and bought my list out like seven times to the point that the post office called me up and was like, eh, you got to come get your own packages. We can't fit all these in the box and do the normal route. Like you, our trucks can't hold this. And from there, it just grew and grew to the point that it has become such a large happening that I actually was going to turn it into a not-for-profit. It's now called Supplies for Life. One of the biggest agencies in my county asked us to come under their umbrella. And now I direct my own program that I own under Delaware Opportunities Umbrella. And I service the entire county. And like, if anyone, it still makes me get choked up and it, it maybe eventually one day it won't. But if anyone tells you that you're a convicted felon, you're a drug addict, you know, you lost your kid or this and you can't do it, tell those people to go fuck themselves because they were absolutely wrong. I'm a convicted felon several times over. I lost my child for four years. I've been to prison more times than most females, unfortunately. And I came home and I just kept doing the next right thing. And now I literally get to do what I love every day. And I meet the most amazing people and my subscribers for my YouTube channel. They're amazing. Like I'm a convicted felon who is horrible drug addict, who is lucky enough to be in the remission part of her life. And I wake up every day and I think to myself, like, is this real? Is this real? Is this really my life? Because why? I don't know how I got so lucky. That's why I always say it's by the grace of my God, because I definitely didn't do this alone because I should be dead. What an inspiring uh, story, Jen. And it's amazing everything that you've overcome and you've taken such dark times in your life and turned it into something meaningful. And just the story with your daughter in itself is incredibly touching. And I think a lot of people are going to appreciate how you've come out on the other side. And, and I want to kind of be valuable of our time. So I do kind of want to wrap up here in a couple minutes, but without, without like I would, before we wrap up, I'd like to, since I know that one of the things you're a strong advocate for is prison reform. Yes. And it's a hot topic right now. I personally believe it, it needs an overhaul and we need to, to figure out what to do with the, the nonviolent drug offenders and how we can curate 
a path for them to get well and not just sit behind bars because that in itself, I don't believe. Resentment um, breeds content and that's exactly what's happening. Right. But I think there's, and I think there's also needs to be some space for like accountability. Like I don't want, I don't think that people can just go rob people and just be like, Oh, I'm a drug addict. I, that's why I robbed you and then not pay a penalty. Right? I think there needs to be some structure too. So if you could change a few things or if, if you had, control over what could be done to overhaul the prison system or if, what would be a few things you would do? Okay. So I've thought about this often actually, because I pray maybe one day I will have a say. I am eternally grateful for my incarceration, especially the last one, because the last one was the hardest. I lost my child and she got to see a side of me that I had prayed she never would. So that in itself was detrimental to my entire existence. But after serving a year and a half inside regular prison, I got frustrated and I said, fuck this, like I'm done with this. And I signed up for Lakeview Shock and I did military boot camp. And I swear to you on everything I love, that is the changing point in my life. That program showed me that I am capable of anything I put my mind to. Because let me tell you, I am not a chick that likes to exercise. <laughs> I know that's your bag, but it is not mine. Right, right. right. <laughs> I do not want to run three miles at six o'clock in the morning. So there at 5 a.m., you wake up, run into the corner of your cube, yelling, screaming, counting off military bearings at all times. You have DIs, not corrections officers. We PT for five, for 45 minutes every morning, run three miles. And guess what? I did it. Every single day for six months, I did it. It proved to me I am capable of more and I am capable of being good enough, even though I always thought I never was because of how I was brought up. And I am capable of being better than just good enough. I'm capable of anything I put my mind to. And even if I fuck up and I fail, as long as I get up and keep trying and putting the next foot in front of the other, that's a win because I'm still in it. I'm still here. I'm still doing it. I didn't give up. And then we had to work together as a team. And I realized, you know, we're all in this together. One of us goes down, we're all sinking. And that gave me accountability to other people I never had. Instead of using people for badness, I learned to trust them and accept that I can't do everything alone. And sometimes I do need a partner and things. And I was also forced to work on childhood dramas. I wrote no send letters. I shared things with my platoon sisters that I'd never shared with a soul in my life. And I thought that I would be judged for or made fun of or crucified. And when they stood up and hugged me and cried with me, it was, it was a freeing situation where I never experienced that before. I finally didn't have to carry that baggage alone. I, I opened it up, I let it out and I put it down and I left that dirt where it belonged. And I think those types of programs, prison's about reform when the person goes in, right? What are we doing besides putting people in a cell and letting them just sit 
and do nothing. There's no reform. We're not educating people. We're not making them feel worth anything. We're not saying, hey, listen, we know you did this. What are tools we can help you learn to put in your toolbox? So when we're on the outside, these shitty situations come up again because they're going to. What are we going to do to give you a better education so you could learn to better be equipped for the situations that surround you? We don't do any of that. We just put people in a fucking box and we just tell them they're bad and we reinforce their bad behaviors. We put them in solitary confinement. Whoever got better being all alone with the voices in their head? Nobody. I've been in solitary. It is not a walk in the park. It's fucking shitty. We take away people's showers. We take away their ability to take care of themselves. We show them how shitty we think they are by paying them seven cents an hour. You know, that's slave labor. I I don't care what country you live in or where you come from. As a human being, I don't care whether I'm behind bars, Outside in the free world where I am, I am a human being. When you treat a human like a human, you get a human reaction back. When you treat someone like an asshole, well, you reap what you sow and that's what you get. And I just feel like we need to put the humanization of people back inside prison as well. Yes, there are people who deserve to be there for life. Absolutely. I don't, I'm not a defund the police type of gal. I don't feel like, do I think some of their stuff is out of line? Yes. But prison, police, it's all a part of society that we need. Yeah. And I couldn't have said it better myself. I think providing some, some sense of structure, discipline, and something in a, in a mechanism for people to channel all this pent up negative mental and emotional energy into something meaningful and positive. Like you talked about the structure that this military camp gave you and things like fitness and what that did for you. And even though you don't like it, you knew it was good for you and it made you feel better and it made you who you are today. And so I I can't echo that enough. And, And your story is super inspiring. I'm quite moved with everything you shared and how you're still able to sit here and have a conversation with me about you know, everything. And I think people are going to want to learn more about your journey and check out what you're doing. So where can people do that? So I have a self-titled channel on YouTube. I also have Instagram, which is JL cutting. I have a TikTok, which is Jen cutting one. Everything is pretty much self-titled, maybe with a letter or a number thrown in here. But I also have a supplies for life, Instagram and Facebook page. So if they just go to my YouTube channel, they will find all my social media linked. And I also have a Patreon as well. Awesome, Jen. I will make sure to include all of that in the show notes. And guys, if you listen to this, guys and gals, if you listen to this, you're going to want to like pause and, and re-listen to certain parts because the story is insane and it's incredibly inspiring. And what I want you to do, just like I ask with, with most other episodes, is to share a takeaway. And maybe it was something that she said about her journey. Maybe it was something that she said about opiates and how that made her feel or the prison system or her daughter, whatever it was. Tag Jen, tag myself. We'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes, and we'll see you next time.